Welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. I'm Daniel Connolly here with Megan Gower. And we thought tonight on Wednesday night, we we're going to be recording and talking about two games. Unfortunately, we only have one game to talk about. So yesterday, pretty much 24 hours before UConn was supposed to tip off against Seton Hall, the school announced that it was postponing the game out of an abundance of caution after Providence, UConn's opponent on Saturday, shut down or paused all team activities due to COVID issues. So with UConn having just played them, they decided it was best to shut down and just do additional testing, I assume, in order to make sure everyone came back negative. We actually haven't gotten a time frame on how long UConn's going to be sidelined, but with the way the schedule shaked out, UConn's not projected to play another game until next Tuesday, January 19th, because the same day as Seton Hall got postponed, UConn's game on Saturday against Villanova got postponed because of COVID issues within the Wildcats program. So things have not really worked out well for UConn scheduling-wise pretty much since Christmas through no no fault of their own. They've only played twice since Christmas. One of them was against DePaul. The other one was against Providence and the Providence game forced them to miss another one. So that ended up being a wash anyways. So it has been a pretty crazy few weeks. So Megan, just what are your thoughts on the way everything's unfolded? I mean, I think Unfortunately, it makes sense that this is happening just based on where everything is with COVID across the country. Like it's just gotten worse and we've seen more cancellations, but I think it's becoming very clear that the current plan, I mean, we've been saying this since it started that the current plan was not a good plan, but now you've only played two games since Christmas. It's been a couple of weeks. Games are getting canceled left and right. It's very clear that the current plan is not working. Right. At one point, six out of the 11 Big East women's basketball teams were shut down. I don't understand how that's a remotely tenable situation, especially considering, as you mentioned, things are probably only going to get worse. And like, I just don't understand how you can try and play a normal season without really changing anything dramatically. Like, aside from the changes that the school, the schools themselves are making, the format for the big East really isn't that different at all. It's just they're scheduling games, like nothing's happening. And then just what's happening within those specific games are different, but the format and everything isn't different. And yeah, something has to change because for a stat as of Wednesday night, like going into Thursday, there all have been 27 women's basketball games played in the big East over a span of six weeks. They need to play 83 more to try and get a full double round robin schedule in seven weeks. There's just absolutely no way that is remotely possible. And there's no way that can happen based on the way everything's gone to this point. And the fact that not only are the numbers getting worse nationwide, students are coming back to campuses for the first time this season. This entire basketball season has operated on pretty much empty campuses because most schools sent their kids home for winter break before Thanksgiving. So, you know, the narrative was that, Oh, It's going to be pseudo bubbles and we're going to be able to get a lot of games in before then. So if things are already this much of a disaster now, they're definitely only going to get worse as time goes on. Yeah, exactly. Like I think just looking at the situation now, it's, it's bad. Like it's, I mean, 
like you said, like playing two games since Christmas is just, there's been so many games canceled. And then you add in an extra variable of students, not just UConn students, but students across the country. So it's going to make things worse. I just like, it seems like if they're going to try to play the rest of the season, you need to come up with a new plan now because there's not that much time like left. So there's like, three weeks left in January, not even. And then another um, the February and then it's March and you, you got to get these, if you're trying to get these games in before March, you need a new plan probably like this week to figure out how you're going to do that. Right. And well, reportedly, according to her CT's Doug Bonjour, Big East coaches met on Monday. They're set to meet again on Thursday to decide what to do going forward. Really, if you're still going to try and play a double round robin season, which I think is really kind of pushing it. I think the first focus should be making sure that schools like UConn, DePaul, Marquette, those who are in contention for the NCAA tournament, you make sure those schools just get to the 13 game threshold so that they qualify for it, so that they're eligible. I think that is the number one focus because if for some reason, through no fault of those three schools, like those three schools don't have shutdowns, you get to the end of the season and someone like Butler, who has won one game in seven tries in the Big East, has, say, 15 games, and one of those three schools is only at, like, 10. That is a massive failure. You need to make sure these those schools that are in contention for the NCAA tournament are going to be eligible. Really, I think the only way that you do that is that you either move to some sort of bubble format where it's either like what we saw in the WNBA or the NBA, where it's a total bubble and you're there for – six weeks or whatever the time frame is and no one comes in or out during that span or maybe you do something less drastic as in pods which was floated earlier in the year where four schools get together for let's say a week and a half two weeks and they all play each other twice get a bunch of games in and then everyone goes back to their home campus for a week resets and then you do it with a bunch of other teams I still don't think that's a great solution because you're still stuck with the issue of people could bring the virus into those bubbles, which just throws an entire wrench in everything. And then, you know, if you're just going back and forth from bubble to non-bubble, we saw it with Bubbleville. It's not really a secure thing. There's going to be positive tests. I think one format that would be worth looking at is what the America East is doing. So if for some reason you're not following America East basketball extremely closely, what they're doing is having two game series on back-to-back days at one location. So for example, Vermont travels to UMass Lowell for two games. They play two games in Lowell and that's the season series. Then UVM hosts, let's say UNH for two games in Vermont, both those games checked off the schedule. So if the Big East is not only determined to keep playing with a travel format and they're determined to play 20 games for each team, I think you need to do something like that where you're stacking games. So as long as teams get cleared and are there, just get the games out of the way, get as many in as you can. And then it also avoids stacking games on teams where like we saw with UConn early in the season, they play four games in a stretch of eight days or something like that, which just inherently isn't good for the players' bodies. Whereas two games in back-to-back days, that's not really out of the realm of possibility. We see that happen in conference tournaments. So if you give them enough refs after that, I think it's something that could maybe work to get them, even if it doesn't get them to that 20-game mark, maybe it gets them a lot closer than what they're doing now would. Exactly. I think, I mean, ideally you go to a bubble, right? Like that's going to be the safest option we saw at the summer. It works. There's no positive cases. I think 
you clearly see, I mean, even in a league like the NBA where they have kind of an infinite number of resources and everything available to them, they're trying to play in a non-bubble environment right now. And it's a complete disaster, possibly even more of a disaster than the NCAA. So I think ultimately the best plan is to go to a bubble. It kind of sounds like that's what the hope is for the NCAA tournament. But I think obviously there's a lot of resources that go into creating a bubble and it's expensive. So it's maybe not the most reasonable approach. And also it's a lot of planning and there's not a lot of time to do planning right now. So I, I agree. I think the American East format brings something that, you know, gets the games in because like you said, the ultimate goal is make sure your teams that are going to contend for the tournament get their games. in. so that's UConn, that's DePaul, that's Marquette, throw Villanova in there. Cause I think they're kind of on the edge there, but that, that should be the ultimate goal here. Yeah, it's just so clear at this point that what's happening isn't working. And then if you move to the America East format, you know, if UConn's supposed to play, let's use Villanova as an example. They have two games against Villanova at home. Well, Villanova has to shut down because of positive tests. Maybe the team that Butler's supposed to play shuts down due to positive tests. Then you can just schedule those two teams against themselves. You get two games in, and then both of those schools now have an open weekender an open slot for a series that they can fill in somewhere else. I feel like it's a lot easier to replace games and schedule things around these virus issues when you have stacked games and it's more spread out instead of just kind of trying to throw games left and right with no clear cut format. So I was just going to say exactly right now, you know, UConn has a game canceled on Tuesday. Well, you've got to find a Big East team that has an opening on Tuesday. There's just like no organization to how things are being done. Right. And also we should really just be ditching these non-conference games at this point. Like I understand that they're very important for a measuring stick. The ratings are big. The NCAA tournament implications are there. But those are two time slots where you can probably schedule Big East games. And can you really afford to not be playing Big East games essentially for TV money? Like that's really what it boils down to. You could easily reschedule South Carolina for next year, push that back. I imagine you could also push Tennessee back. We've just got such a short time frame now, especially if the NCAA insists on having the tournament in March, which... I think is another entire thing on its own. If we have the NCAA tournament in May and, you know, resume play in March, then that gives a pretty good amount of time for everyone to try and get things under control with the virus. And also we have vaccines out. So that's just another six to eight weeks where more people can get vaccinated. And even though I don't think college athletes should get vaccinated, it at least might help get the numbers down. And if they're at least trending downwards, I think that's a lot more tenable than where they are now, where they're just spiking and there's no sign of it coming down. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see the NCAA push back the tournament. They seem pretty gung-ho on the we're playing as we're playing and we're playing the tournament in March. I don't really understand what the like obsession with playing it in March is. On the women's side, it makes more of a big deal because you've got WNBA season coming up and you've got to line that up. But on the men's side, there's really no reason they couldn't push it, which you know is ultimately what the decisions are being made based on. So it's interesting to me that they seem pretty, you know, set on playing March Madness in March instead of you know May when it might be safer. But I agree that I think those non-conference games at this point, your biggest concern is just getting 13 games because I think at the beginning of the season, everyone was like, oh, we'll get 13 games, no problem. 
that's starting to look like a lot more of a risk that you don't get to the 13 games. With the WNBA, I do think that is a concern, but at the same time, I don't think the NCAA ter- NCAA should be making its decisions on what a pro league is going to do, especially because I really don't think the difficulties of, you know, rookies coming in, what would it be? It would, it would be like a month later than usual, two months later than usual. A month, I think really preseason usually starts in May. So it would, shouldn't make much of a difference. Right. And especially if you pause all college basketball until March, players are going to have two months off to rest their body. So it's not like they're going to be going from playing November or even October straight through March or straight through May, and then immediately joining the WNBA and just being completely overworked. It's still not an ideal situation where they really don't have any break after college, but it's still, I think, a better situation than what we have now. Yeah, I agree. And ultimately, I don't think the NCAA is making that decision based on the the WNBA. That's probably the last thought they have, to be honest. Like, I think it's, I don't know what it's about. Maybe the TV TV deals in March or they just want to play in March. I don't really understand why it really hasn't been tabled to like say, like, why don't we just push this back? But I think you've seen it in the way that the decisions have been made to go to one site and in locations and stuff. I think the men's tournament is obviously driving where the decisions are being made. So until they make a decision that they're going to delay the men's tournament, I don't think we're going to see anything different from the women's. Right. But at the same time, it's like CBS, TBS, True TV. I think I might be missing one of the stations for men's basketball tournament games. And then women's basketball is all ESPN. Is there really any event in May that you can't work around for an NCAA tournament? Obviously, there's still like NHL and NBA going on. Baseball started at that point. But for such a huge event, I feel like it would be there's still not a whole lot going on. It's not like you're trying to schedule up against college football or the NFL where there's these definitive time slots that you can't move things off. It feels like you can still be pretty flexible in the spring. It's just the more things go on at at this pace the less it feels like it's going to be an actual legitimate season and an actual legitimate NCAA tournament because there's no non-conference play, which I guess we're already past that point. But how do you compare a team who's undefeated in 13 conference games compared to a team that I don't even know if this is even possible at this point, but a team that might play 26 games and has a relatively decent non-conference slate and has a much more well-rounded, you know, resume kind of like I think we saw in the college football final with Alabama who I think had played all 12 games or close to and then Ohio State who had played seven that's a very drastic difference in college football and I think we could see a similar thing in college basketball so pushing the tournament back gives you more options it gives you more of a chance to play under better circumstances it's not guaranteed things are better in March April or May But based on what we've seen from the virus this past nine months, 10 months, however long it's been, it is bound to go down at some point. And I think it's just irresponsible to be trying to play games based on the state of things right now. I 100% agree. I think 
that's the right plan, right? Is to delay things, go to pause things for a bit and then pick it back up, hopefully when things are better and then try to play a tournament later in the year when you can actually have comparable resumes. Because right now you can't like properly seed an NCAA tournament. There's just no way. There's no measuring stick between these different conferences. It's it's a nightmare to try to seed an NCAA tournament right now. Not that that should be the ultimate deciding factor, the fact that it's just not safe to be playing is why we shouldn't be playing. But I feel like I haven't seen that anything that makes me think that they're actually going to do anything about it. I feel like everyone's just kind of like, yeah, it's all right. We're going to keep going forward. I feel like I've seen tweets this week that I was like, oh, our game is sold out. And I'm like, why are, why are we celebrating this? That sounds like the worst possible idea. It's it's just all a disaster. Yeah. It's like the people who are saying like, oh, 95% of college games are on this weekend or, you know, the tweets that came at the end of the NFL season that were like, not a single NFL game got canceled. And it's like, yeah, Let's look at the back text of that a little more. I was reading something online about the shopping cart test. You can use a person returning a shopping cart at a grocery store as a measure of the of them being inherently good or inherently bad. So if they return the shopping cart, well, everyone acknowledges that you're supposed to return the shopping cart to that covered area or whatever you call where you put the shopping carts in the parking lot. Everyone agrees that you should do it. Obviously not everyone does it. So the theory goes that if someone returns the shopping cart to the place that they do the good thing without being commanded to or pushed to, but if someone doesn't return it, that means they need to be told to do the right thing. So to use this comparison in light of the NCAA, if the NCAA was returning the shopping cart, they would light the shopping cart on fire. If you know what I'm saying, they would just yeah, do the say, worst possible thing. The right thing. <laughs> yes. They, you just can never count on the NCAA to do the right thing ever. And yeah, even exactly. when they do do the right thing, the rare occasion that they do the right thing, there's almost usually some ulterior motive behind it. Exactly. Exactly. So I think the way that they change is that if, you know, some big team or something pulls out or like says that they're not going to keep playing like this, but I don't even know who does that right now. Like that makes a difference because even if you look like ultimately, unfortunately, they're going to make all the decisions based on the men's game. And like you look at all your like men's blue buds, if Duke pulls out, well, they're not even that good this year. So is the NCAA going to like change their whole plan? I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know what pushes them to do the right thing because it takes a lot to get them to do the right thing. Right. Duke women's basketball decided to cancel its season. And I think really the only major effect it had was probably SMU canceling its season. We really didn't see much beyond that. I don't even, I don't think Gino got asked about it. It came, it might've come at a weird time where there wasn't a UConn game for a while and other things come up, or maybe I'm just completely forgetting that he did get asked about it. No, he did get asked about it. He did. And it like, it doesn't seem like UConn itself is going to cancel its season. And I, I don't know if schools should be responsible for making that decision on their own. I think it really should be an NCAA thing or at the bare minimum, a conference thing like we saw with the Ivy league. It's just, I mean, we all know that this thing's being driven completely for money it's the NCAA. Everything is for money, (laughs) but at the same time, like you have to do something because it's just so out of control right now. Yeah, exactly. And that's the part I don't get because I feel like it's so obvious that everything's so out of control yet no bigger body in terms of conferences or 
or at least a major conference, some conferences have stepped up a major conference or the NCAA is stepping in and being like, okay, this is not working. Right. And I think that might be why the Big East could be hesitant to move to a bubble because they'd pretty much have to be the pioneers in that. They'd be the first ones as a college league, I believe, unless I'm wrong. I know one of the college hockey leagues might've been doing pods. I don't know if they were in a full bubble, but I don't think at least a prominent college athletic league like the big East hasn't taken that step forward. Whereas like in the fall to use another football example, when UConn football canceled their season, that really set off a chain reaction of a bunch of other conferences deciding not to play. I think it might take a similar thing for I'd say bubbles to happen in college basketball, but even that I'm not really convinced. Like if the big East goes to a bubble, will the big 10 and ACC follow or vice versa? I'm not really sure at this point because it seems like everyone's kind of dead set at playing in home markets and playing normal schedules. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, even when you talk about UConn football, like UConn stuck with that decision, but so many conferences that were like, yeah, we're not going to play either retracted that decision and ended up playing so it didn't really stick but I agree I think some of these other conferences especially schools that are in the south or like the midwest where they're allowing fans are very attached to like still playing a normal schedule and home and home formats and playing in their home arenas it is just absolutely mind-blowing that anyone is allowing fans right now oh yeah just exactly. <laughs> insanity. Like even the fact that UConn was going to try and have fans, I would like to think that at this point they would have already shut down having fans there. I, at least you have to hope just because of how bad things are right now. It's just like, it's really pushing it to say that anyone should even be playing any league, whether it be college basketball, any college sports, the NBA, the NFL, there's just, so much risk and all of the arguments that well they're safer on campus or they're safer in their pseudo bubbles have just been completely proven wrong at this point so it's just it seems like it's just gonna get railroaded through no matter what but I do hope that maybe something comes out of these Big East coaches meetings that make them decide to either at, at the very least change the format or maybe lower their expectations from having a double round Robin and just focus on not only getting to 13 games, but trying to play every team once in some capacity and then getting as many second games in as you can. Well, after that very uplifting conversation, we are going to a quick ad break. And when we come back, we promise we're actually going to talk about basketball and we're back. So we are going to start actually on the recruiting trail. On Wednesday morning, the number one player in the class of 2022, Lauren Betts, announced her commitment to Stanford. She goes out west. She's from Colorado, so she's already kind of in the western part of the country. For as hot as UConn's been on the recruiting trail, Stanford's pretty much been right there with them. So they are pretty well stocked, at least if you look at the recruiting numbers in that span. For reference, UConn has two number one recruits, obviously Paige Beckers and AZ Fudd, two top five players, at least according to ESPN's rankings in Caroline Ducharm and Azuna Brady, who are in the 2021 and 22 classes respectively, and then five top 30 players, along with two international players that 
weren't ranked by any recruiting services, but were both pretty well regarded as pretty good prospects coming over from Europe. So it seems like it's going to be a battle of those two schools over the next few years. What are your thoughts, Megan? Yeah, I mean, it's a great recruiting class or recruiting classes for Stanford, but I just, I think there's a difference in levels between the number one recruits. And I think ultimately, I still think UConn is just going to be at a different level than even Stanford going into these seasons. Everything, I mean, of course it comes down to, is everything you've heard about AZ true, but everything we've heard about Paige seems to have been true. And everyone was like, you know, she's the best recruit since Stewie or Asia. And then now you've got AZ coming in that everything I've heard is that she's supposed to be even better than Paige. So with the hype that Paige has lived up to, I can only imagine how good AZ is going to be if she lives up to that hype. So while I think it's Stanford's got really good classes coming in, I still think UConn is just going to be a step above everyone else. I do hope, though, that a UConn-Stanford series gets scheduled because that's going to be the most fun games to watch over the next couple of years, in my opinion. That's true. That does need to get added to the schedule. And I, I think UConn does actually have a lot of open space on its future schedules. I will disagree, though, that Paige has been as good as we've been told she is, because I don't think we were actually prepared for how good she was going to be. We were told she was <laughs> going to be good. The only person, I will shout out Howard Megdahl here. He did say, I can't remember how long ago it was. Maybe it was right when she committed her in the summer after that UConn fans weren't ready for how good Paige was going to be. And I think he hit the nail on the head with that one. You know, I have also heard that AZ is supposed to be better than Paige. And that really just feels like such an unbelievably like impossible thing to do because I really don't know if there's a freshman at UConn who can compare to what Paige has done. I think Maya Moore probably. Maya Moore maybe is the only one who's above Paige. But, you know, last week in the weekly, I went through to see what Gino said about those other great freshmen that have come through just because he only ever seems to have positive things to say about her. And, you know, sometimes they come through in sarcastic ways where he says she wasn't stupid against Providence or you need her to be not dumb. And she wasn't not dumb against Providence. He something along those lines. And he's already kind of admitted that she's basically the centerpiece of the team and the team revolves around her as a freshman. And I think we've seen that ourselves and, you know, she's just been so good in every single aspect of the game. As Gino said, she really doesn't have any weaknesses on offense. She's not a great one-on-one defender, but she's a really good defender in terms of getting steals and getting out in fast breaks and, Obviously, she's only going to get better as she gets more comfortable. And as we've said a lot, the most impressive thing about her game is that nothing phases her. And she's just got so much confidence without being cocky. And, you know, maybe AZ is that good and can come into UConn and have absolutely nothing bother her at all. It's more just that I don't believe that AZ is going to be able to just take things in stride and handle things so well, just because I don't think that's a knock on AZ. I think that's just something about Paige. Paige is probably right there with Maya Moore and being just one of the most prepared freshmen for college basketball. And she has such a great mindset that it's so tough to replicate that. But yeah, at the same time, if AZ is even as good as Paige, I feel like it's going to be you could pretty much get every single other recruit in the country and UConn would still be in a pretty good spot. So it will be interesting to see how both these recruiting classes over the past few years pan out 
on both sides because I think we've already seen some very good returns from UConn's freshman class. But obviously, as I keep saying, that 2017 class where Megan Walker is the only one that's still here, just because players are highly rated doesn't necessarily mean they're going to pan out. Exactly. I think, you know, we've seen it in many cases where it doesn't happen, but I feel like Paige and AZ, well, obviously Paige is panning out. That's pretty clear from whatever eight games or whatever they've actually been able to play. But I feel like AZ is going to be in that category too, just everything I've heard about her. And then the fact that she won like the Gatorade National Player of the Year as a sophomore, it's just completely unheard of. There's no one that's, I think she was the first player to do that. No one's done that before. So it just kind of speaks to like what level her game is at. Um, so I'm just, I'm really excited to see the two of them. I think people have asked me this question too, with relation to like South Carolina having, I think it's the two, three and four top recruits next year. And I'm just like, yeah, but I just, I just don't know that it matters if you have Paige and AZ on the same team. Right. It's not a matter of depth of talent when, if you have, especially in basketball, I feel like basketball more so than any other sport. If you have really just the best player on the floor, that gives you a really good chance to win the game. If you have the two best players on the floor, it's going to be really hard to stop you, especially with how much talent UConn is going to have around those two. Even if you have a really good, a really solid deep team, it's just, it, it's star power that carries basketball for the most part. If you look at the last few national champions where Baylor had Lauren Cox and uh, help me out. Who else do they have? Uh, <laughs> Kalani Brown. Kalani Brown. There we go. Kalani Brown. I knew I was missing a very important name. <laughs> Notre Dame the year before. Jessica Shepard, Erika Gumbawale, South Carolina, Asia Wilson, UConn every year before that, Brianna Stewart. <laughs> you just need that talisman, that really high-level player. And if you can pair that top player with another top player like UConn did with Mariah Jefferson and Morgan Tuck. And before that, Stephanie Dolson, Bria Hartley, Kalina Mosqueda Lewis. You're just that much better than everyone else. And like we've said, the things that we've seen from this freshman class besides Paige are already really promising, especially obviously with UConn's history of developing players to their full potential. And, you know, it's obviously too early to tell about next year's class, but at least on paper, it looks really good. So it's just going to be, like I said, it's going to be very fun to watch pan out. And it's really going to be teams that it'll be as far as Paige and AZ can take them. And, you know, at least for Paige, we've already seen that she's going to be able to take them a very, very long ways. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people think it's like obnoxious to say this, but I feel like as far as Paige and AZ can take them is probably the I mean, easily the final floor, probably the national championship most years. So uh, even like with the good recruiting class at Stanford or at South Carolina, I just think there's a reason those players have been talked about or AZ and Paige have been talked about so much and hyped so much. And they're at a different level than some like, it's just like Paige is at a different level than Kristen Williams, who is also a number one recruit, right? Or Megan Walker. There's, there's just different levels still to that number one recruit and, um, I think that they're both that kind of, from what we've heard at least about AZ and what we've seen from Paige, they're just at that other level that's going to make UConn probably easily better than these other teams. I actually imagine there's 
people listening to this podcast right now screaming at me. Diana Taurasi is probably the best example of what we're talking about of a star, how far <laughs> a star player can take you as detailed by the four years after she left. And, you know, for UConn standards, the nosedive they took after that, it showed you that the talent around her was not great. And she was like, without her, they obviously don't get to the final four either of those years. Who knows how far they even go. Yeah. Like just having that star player is huge in basketball. And I think, especially you look at those freshman years, Diana Taurasi had a game at Pepperdine her freshman year where she didn't score. She had her ups and downs. Maya Moore, as Gino said before, is the only one who's ever come in and dominated from the start. And, you know, I think she's very clearly established herself as statistically the best player in program history. And then Brianna Stewart, as Gino said earlier this year, great at the beginning, great at the end, sucked in between. So if like Paige really hasn't had a dip in her game, she's had games that are below her standard where she's already set her standard, which are still better games than most other freshmen have. It just shows you what level she's at. And she's only going to continue getting better, especially as she gets more games under her belt, as she gets more practice time mixed in with games where it's not 28 day stretches where they're only playing two games, which is, I think where they're probably going to end up when they get to, if nothing is scheduled before the, Butler game next week so it's like it's just going to be fun to watch so looking at 2022 UConn right now only does have Azuna Brady committed she's a center forward number five player in the class Megan where else do you think they should add for that recruiting class to kind of balance out the roster I feel like looking at the roster for 2022, it's already pretty balanced. So, which obviously is the best position to be in because that means you just take the best players you can get. You don't really need anything. You can just go with, you know, whoever's the best player that fits with the team that makes sense to recruit. So hopefully they'll pick up some other top 10 recruit in there, but there's nothing specific that they need, which I think is a good place to be. And you just, you can take the best players that are available. Right. I think the biggest concern for the program kind of in that time frame when you get to 2022 is that 2020 class is just so big and obviously already so talented that that's just such a huge drop off to kind of deal with even though if that 2021 class with DeBerry, Ducharme, AZ Fudd and Poffenbarger even if that one is as good as we expect it to be that's just such a huge numerical loss that I think it would be good to try and get a bigger sophomore class, maybe three players minimum, just so that you're not then having to replace that huge freshman class with another big freshman class and relying on young players so heavily. Again, you can kind of blunt the impact of that loss and kind of get back to a more settled cycle of losing an equal number of players each year and replacing them with freshmen instead of just having big fluctuations like we've kind of seen the last few years. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a big, a big deal, right? Because you've seen it kind of in the last few years, they lose this big chunk of players and it's like, all right, this down year by UConn standards, but not really a down year. If you still like the bump panel board, but just because there's some fluctuation and talent that's being brought in and stuff. So I think not that they're actual down years, but it will just help kind of eliminate some of that. Yeah, for sure. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think arguably recruiting is more fun 
to talk about in theoretical terms than, you know, actually the nuts and bolts of it. But to get back to the basketball court and what's happening now this season, we do actually have a game to talk about. So on Saturday, UConn beat Providence 87 to 50. And in, at least in my view, it was honestly one of the most intriguing games of the season, if not anything else. I mean, for sure. We played so many young lineups, which in my opinion was just so much fun to watch. And obviously we still beat Providence handedly, but it was just really interesting to see different combinations of players on the floor. And I don't want to jump the gun, but I'm also just so excited to talk about Aubrey Griffin because we've seen her struggle so much this season and we finally got a really good game from her. Yeah, let's just get right into Aubrey because I know we've talked a lot about her on this podcast. And if you go back and listen to some of our preseason episodes and our preseason predictions, our expectations were extremely high for her. We were, I think, I I know I said that I thought she could merit all American consideration this year, if not defensive player of the year consideration. And she hasn't come anywhere close to being at that level. And, you know, I, I feel like a question we haven't really gotten a solid answer to is, The DePaul game, she only played eight minutes and it came out that she was dealing with back spasms. We still haven't really gotten a clear answer on how long she's been dealing with those back spasms and if those have been an issue issue for her all season long. And that's why she's kind of been, I feel like muted's the right word for her because you just she hasn't had that burst and that flash that we saw last year and that we saw against Providence. So I wonder if maybe a lot of it was just that back injury. She didn't feel comfortable out on the court more than, you know, just not necessarily being able to take that step yet and was more struggling with mental things. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think especially because she kind of came out and had this big game after it was eight days off, 11 days off. I'm forgetting the number, but a bunch of days off, um, so she got some rest, probably good for that back with the holidays and then came out, had a really strong performance. I really wonder if the back injury is something that's just been bothering her since the start of the season. And hopefully that extra time off kind of cleared that up. And we're going to see more like this from her going forward, because I thought she looked a lot more like the Aubrey Griffin we saw on the court last year in this game versus we haven't seen that at all in the first seven. Yeah. And I think the thing that was most telling in my view was that, she wasn't necessarily like she did look like she did last year, but at the same time, I think still think she was a little more advanced than she was last year where Mm -hmm. thinking of that AAC tournament game where she had 16 rebounds and I think 15 points. And it felt like pretty much all of her points came off offensive rebounds, which isn't in and itself a bad thing, but against Providence, she had 18 points and only eight of those were off offensive rebounds. So 10 of those points came just from a general flow of the offense. And I think we saw a couple times she kind of posted up and then used that post up to drive off and get to the basket. And, you know, it wasn't like she is suddenly an offensive revelation, but she did seem to have more of a well-rounded offensive game than she had last year. And then for her offensive rebounds, I think the thing that just blew my mind after the game, I didn't realize it until a few hours after was She had eight offensive rebounds against Providence in all the games leading up to that. She had eight offensive rebounds total. So it just shows you how far off her normal game she was before Providence. And 
hopefully it's going to be one of those games that gives you a spark. But as Gino said after the game, consistency is just still an issue with her. And until she does find that in practice and we hear about it, I have a hard time believing that she's going to post 18 and nine or really 20 and 10 every single night or something close to that. Agreed, agreed. The consistency has to come with it, but just to highlight those eight boards a little bit more, I mean, it's just like literally insane. She had more offensive rebounds than Providence did as a whole. She rebounded 44, over 44% of UConn's missed shots from on the floor, which is just like an absolutely insane statistic. Most teams don't re- like rebound 44% of their own misses, let alone one player. I think in the number of minutes that she played, there's just in the last five seasons or since the 2015 season there's been only 13 players that in a single game have rebounded that percentage or more of their team's offensive rebounds while on the floor when playing that many minutes so just like an absolutely insane performance from her on the offensive class yeah well not only did Aubrey have more offensive rebounds than Providence she had more offensive rebounds than the rest of UConn combined and didn't Mir have a similar stat to that early in the season where she had some mark of offensive rebounds that hadn't been reached very often? I Do you remember the exact stat or not? I don't remember the exact stat, but yeah, she did something very similar. And I mean, makes sense because they are just such similar players. But like you said, Aubrey had more rebounds than the entire team. But I mean, UConn as a whole rebounded over 50% of their missed shots in that game. And it's mostly driven by Aubrey on the glass. It's just going to be hilarious watching Aubrey and Mir on the court together for the next three years. Two players that are just phenomenal at going and getting offensive rebounds, especially when you consider that you'll have someone like Olivia Nelson-Adota and Aaliyah Edwards, who are both strong themselves on the offensive glass. Like UConn is already one of the best defensive rebounding teams in the country this year, if not the best right now. And they're solid, but not, you know, top tier for offensive rebounding but they're gonna be really good on the offensive glass for the foreseeable future especially with those two Aubrey and Mir together it's just gonna be a very very fun combination to watch more than anything for sure I mean they're already like 43rd in the country for offensive rebounding rate because I mean they're never gonna lead the country in offensive rebounds per game because they don't miss enough shots to do that but as a percentage of the shots that they miss they're already pretty high up there and like you said, already really good on the defensive glass, especially if you start playing more lineups. I mean, Aubrey hasn't played a ton of minutes this year. That picks up. And then we saw some in that Providence game with her and Mir on the floor together. I mean, that's just going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, you know, what? what's actually surprising is Aubrey's actually played a not a hefty amount of minutes, but she's played a pretty decent amount of minutes, more than I would have guessed just kind of looking at the without looking at the stats so she's played 16.9 minutes per game which is more than Aaliyah Edwards and if I had to guess I would have guessed that Aaliyah was way ahead of Aubrey in that regard yeah I guess it probably just comes down to the production from those minutes because Aaliyah's production with her minutes has probably been a lot higher which is why it feels like she's played more because up until this game we haven't really seen Aubrey do a whole lot so even when she's been on the court she hasn't been that noticeable right well Speaking of Aaliyah, we saw her first change to the starting lineup against Providence. So Aaliyah Edwards made her first career start while Anna Makarat went to the bench. And we actually talked about this last episode about whether or not we thought it was going to happen, whether we thought it was versatile. So Megan, what did you think of the change and would you keep going with it? 
I don't know if I would keep going with it. I don't know that it was necessarily Aaliyah's fault, but I think that the starting lineup at the beginning of that Providence game was a bit of a disaster. I do think it seemed to like click something in place for Anna though, because she had three from five for three, which I think is the probably the best game we've seen her have from beyond the arc so far this season. So I don't know, maybe it frustrated her a little bit that she got pulled out of that starting lineup and kind of locked her into place on hitting those shots. So hopefully that's something we'll see going forward. Well, I did think that maybe Anna going to the bench could help her out because, you know, last season, all preseason, we heard about how Anna was pretty much locked into the starting lineup. She was definitely going to start. Then the first game comes around and she's on the bench and Gino says that she was paler than usual before the first game. So she wanted her to come off the bench. So, you know, maybe just at this point in her career, she's more comfortable coming off the bench and feels less pressure because, you know, it's not like being a bench player, quote unquote, affected her minutes. She, she led the team with 36 minutes. So really the only time she didn't play was at the start. I think, you know, the most encouraging sign for me, not just the three of five from three, but the fact that she hit her first two threes. And that was an issue with her all season long, where she was, when she was making threes, they were at the end of the game when it didn't really matter. So her two threes were really critical in helping UConn pull back from that early deficit and, go ahead. So, you know, I don't know if maybe Aaliyah being in the starting lineup is the solution, but I think Anna coming off the bench may be something they want to keep going with. And you could use someone like, I don't know. I still feel like Aubrey is someone that you want coming off the bench and same with Mir. Maybe you just find which one would be the best help in the first five minutes of the game to kind of establish a tone, whether that be Aubrey, Aaliyah, maybe even Nika or Mir to, and then shortly after that's when you put Anna in the game and things kind of run like normal, because as we've said all year long for as much as Anna struggled shooting the ball, she has really been a pretty solid offensive player. And she's also playing a new position. Gino said a lot that she's really playing a post position. She's playing next to Olivia Nelson and Dota. So that's an adjustment too. I think And we have to remember, too, that she's a sophomore. A lot of times, I think Nafisa Collier and Katie Lou Samuelson kind of threw off our expectations for what a sophomore year should look like by being both All-Americans in their second year. But sophomores usually do go through struggles, as we saw with Kristen Williams and Olivia Nelson-Adota last year. So I think the key thing with Anna is just finding where she's most comfortable. And maybe I'm wrong, and she just needed to hit a few of those shots and if she's in the starting lineup, whenever UConn plays again, she'll continue hitting those threes. But for the starting lineup, I don't think you're going to remove any of those <laughs> core four players of the three juniors and Paige Beckers. I think those four are all pretty solidly locked in the starting lineup. So I think what you have to do with that fourth or that fifth starting spot is really just find whoever's most comfortable there and whichever player it benefits the most by being in there. Like who knows, maybe Aubrey starting games will just come alive in a way that we haven't seen before. Maybe just that responsibility will help elevate her to the next level or same thing with Mir or Nika. I guess we didn't really see it with Aaliyah, but you know, one game is a small sample size and maybe Anna is just better coming off the bench with less pressure, even if she's still going to play 30 plus minutes a game. So I'll be interested to see how Gino tweaks that spot. He didn't really seem thrilled with, with his decision both after the game. And I was listening to his coach's show on the radio this past week. He 
didn't necessarily sound sold like he was going to stick to it, but it's at least going to be something interesting to watch going forward. Yeah, and a lot of it comes back to, too, I think we're going to talk about it in a minute, but I wondered how much of it was, I don't know that it was all, like, the fact that Aliyah was in the starting lineup versus it just wasn't a great game for his juniors, and I think that might have played into it more than anything. Um, so if, you, you know, you get a normal game from your juniors, it probably looks a lot better off at the start there, having Aliyah there. Right, so, yeah, let's get to the juniors. Kristen Williams scored zero points only the second time she's ever done that in her career. The other time was as a freshman. Hopefully, as I've said all season long, that I think Kristen's going to reach a point where she just hits an A-deer. She reaches a low point, and that's going to be the moment, the spark that helps her go to that next level that we've been waiting for her to get to since her freshman year. It's why it's so disappointing that there's no Seton Hall game and no game anytime soon, because I feel like th- those emotions and the motivation of trying to prove that that performance was a fluke and she's a better player wear off when you're more than a week past that last game, but hopefully that's going to be what finally drives her and clicks into place. It was just, I don't really think, I don't want to say it was representative of her season, but I also wasn't shocked that she had a game like that. If that makes sense. Yeah, for me, I felt like, so Gina put her on the bench, what, four minutes probably or so into that that first half and then didn't put, take her off the bench for the rest of it and sat her there and then brought her back in after halftime. And I kind of thought when I was like, all right, she's got to be pissed now. Like she's been sitting on the bench for 15 minutes. I kind of expected her to kind of go off in that second half and it didn't happen. So hopefully, like you said, it's coming when whenever they play again, though, it's going to be well after this game and this game's going to be a distant memory by the time that happens. So I don't really know that it's going to have that effect, but I don't know. I feel like we're just still waiting for like what sets her into like bringing back that intensity that we used to see that we talked a lot about last episode. Yeah. It's just with UConn's coaching staff's history of developing players and the sheer amount of talent we've seen from Kristen, I just refuse to believe that the light isn't going to go on at some point and she's not ever going to reach that talent that we think that she has. She's just too good of a player to not eventually figure out. And I don't, maybe it's just not going to happen this year and it's going to take her senior year, but it has, it it just, I refuse to believe that it's not going to happen at some point. So I just am hoping that this much of a low point is going to wake her up or, whatever it is, because as we've said all year, even when she has been playing well, neither of us have really felt like she's been anywhere close to her ceiling. It's more been like she's a character on the side, an ensemble player, instead of being the lead go-to. And even if Paige is the number one player on this team, I think we've still seen Olivia show how you can have a one-two punch there. And just because those two players have played well, I don't think that necessarily lets Kristen off the hook for her performances. And I say that like she's been bad, which again, she hasn't been, but I still think there's so much more that we should expect out of her. And I, I feel like we're just a broken record at this point, but maybe this is the moment. And at the same time, very well, this could not be the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we've said this on a lot of episodes, but it's just like, it's not that she's not playing well. It's just, you know what she can do. We saw it in flashes her freshman year. So now that she's in her junior season, you just expect to see that a little bit more consistently. And we're not seeing that level. And I think 
we know it's there and we want to see it. So not that she's playing badly, just that she can do more. Right. What did you think of Olivia Nelson Adota's performance? Because though Providence obviously isn't Baylor, they actually did have some size with Mary Baskerville, Alyssa Gary, people that are a comparable height to her. And she didn't have a great game. She didn't play a whole lot. I mean, if Kristen only played 14 minutes, Olivia only played 15 minutes and she went five of 10 from the floor, had 11 points, two rebounds. It wasn't a bad performance, but it was very underwhelming. And you could tell she was most definitely benched. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think she came out better in the second half. I felt better about her second half performance and then the first half. I mean, she came back in before Kristen, but she just she didn't start off well, sat on the bench for a long time and then kind of came in and was pretty lackluster. I thought her second half was better, but I mean, in the first game that we've really, it's still Providence, but we saw her against some size. Like I was just, I was underwhelmed, which I think to me was disappointing because I was looking forward to if that Baylor game happened, like seeing if she could translate that, what she'd been doing against Baylor. And I kind of feel like from watching this, I'm like, I mean, maybe her just like motivation was off or whatever, but I just don't feel like she would have put up a good game against Baylor after watching that. Yeah. It's just tough for me to figure out because her and Kristen just both seemed really off for whatever reason. And I, I don't think it was an entire junior thing because I actually thought that Avina Westbrook had a pretty solid game and has been one of their more solid, consistent players, even if she isn't putting up huge numbers. So, you know, was it just the letdown of the Baylor game and they were really expecting something big out of that or, you know, something behind the scenes that we don't know about that maybe just it happened to line up with, you know, a performance where she was off against two players that were big. I, 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 I feel like we'd have to go back to the tape and really look if those two affected her shots more than anyone else did this season, or if she just wasn't herself for whatever reason. And it's just tough. It is good that we get to play or we get to see them play Providence again, because if she also doesn't play well on the road there, I think that might be a sign that she does struggle against players that are more comparable to her in size. Whereas if she goes down to Providence and puts up 30 points and 15 rebounds, like, yeah, maybe it was just an off game tonight. So one game is a very small sample size, but it is still something to kind of look at and raise your eyebrow at, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I would say even this year, one game is probably a smaller sample size than normal just because there's so much else going on in the world. Like I think it's, very normal that players are going to be a little bit distracted, right? Like I think everyone that's working a day job is probably distracted from what's going on in the world on various days of the week. So I think it's normal to expect that players are going to have that. I mean, they're just in college, so they're going to have that same effect. Um, so I think smaller sample size is normal. Nothing to panic about at this point, but I think definitely something to keep an eye on because we really haven't seen her get a test inside. Not that Providence was a true test inside, but a little bit more than she's seen and it didn't go well. But like you said, until we see it again, I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, I mean, that is fair about outside factors considering I don't think many of us got a ton of work done last Wednesday. But besides that, staying on basketball strictly, you know, one thing that did kind of stand out to me 
very quietly was their free throw shooting. They went 15 of 17 from the line. And for the most part, this has been a team that's, I don't want to say struggled, but they've been inconsistent with their free throw shooting. And I think it has been a little below what we'd expect from them. And I think what the funniest thing is, is that they come off their worst free throw shooting game of the season against DePaul, where they only hit 50% of their free throws and they only missed two against Providence. So I wonder if maybe it was a focus in practice and just because they had such a long stretch of practice, they were able to shoot a lot of free throws and get more of a rotation going with that. Whereas maybe those got put on the back burner when they were trying to install different things in the preseason or dealing with everything else that was going on. So kind of similar to Liv's performance, I'm interested to see if they stay up near that high free throw percentage. And, you know, it wasn't just one player had a really good game on the free throw line and carried it for the most part. I mean, Paige had five free throws and she made all of them. Aubrey Griffin made four free throws of her four attempts. Avina Westbrook hit both of those, both of hers. Same with Aaliyah Edwards. P.F. Gabriel went one for two. And Olivia Nelson Adota went one for two. So, you know, I don't think either of us expect Olivia Nelson Adota or P.F. Gabriel to be leading this team in free throw shooting percentage. So the fact that the guards and the people that are getting to the free throw line the most are hitting them is a positive sign. But again, I'd like to see it continue over the next few games, at least three games. So it turns into a trend, but it's at least a positive step. Yeah, I'll agree that's a positive step, though I do think, you know, I think part of it is that you know, Livia didn't play a lot of minutes. She only had one or two trips to the free throw line, just took two shots. She's someone that's not great at the free throw line. Um, so that probably skews it a little bit. And then, of course, Paige being on the line more is always going to be helpful. She's probably, in my opinion, at least so far the best shooter on the team. But I think it, we did see good performances, at least from across the board. So we'll see if it continues into other games. But I think Olivia being at the line less might've played into that a little bit as well. Right. And that's a good point. So I have the numbers in front of me and Liv leads the team in free throws with 32. She's tied for the team lead for makes with 19 and Paige Beckers is the other one with 19 and she's only shot 24 free throws. So besides Liv, everyone else with double digit free throws has at minimum a 683 free throw percentage Aliyah Edwards is the bottom there with 684. Everyone else ahead of her has at least a 720 free throw percentage. So for the most part, their guards have been solid at hitting free throws. I think maybe it's just we see that they miss a couple in a row or it it feels like the times they're missing free throws. It's a little more obvious. So yeah, that is a good point that Liv didn't shoot a whole lot. But either way, I think it's good to just see everyone else hitting their free throws pretty well. Yeah, I would agree with that. Hopefully it'll continue. I think in general, I think Liv, Liv does a lot on the floor. And if one thing she doesn't do is hit three throws, I mean, I think that's something she needs to work on because when they play top teams come March or whenever the tournament gets played or next year, whatever, like she's going to be someone that teams are going to foul a lot because of her presence inside and also are going to look to foul at the in end game situations because they know she can't shoot free throws. So she's got to work on that, but I think in general, if other players can make up for that and be more consistent, that's going to be a huge help overall for UConn. Yeah, definitely. And 
we also haven't seen that with these close game situations where you might have to consider taking Nelson Adota off the court if teams start following or things of that nature. So, yeah, I think she definitely needs to improve from 594 on the free throw line. If she could maybe get that, I don't even know what a realistic target is, honestly. But if she can just improve that and be able to hit those free throws in key situations, I think that would be a very big step for UConn. And also just to help her own stat line. I mean, she has left 13 points on the table and you spread that out over a few games and that's pretty much two points more per game, which is a non insignificant amount. I mean, that puts her close to the team lead. Exactly. It's, it's a significant number of points per game. And then especially when you come down to like, if you think about close end game situations, it's really a disadvantage for you kind of have to take her off the court because what she does on the defensive end is just so valuable. So if she can just bring that up, they don't have to worry about that. And that's, that's a huge advantage for UConn. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, hopefully at some point we get to see those closer games, the South Carolina game, maybe Tennessee. Now that Tennessee's in the top 25, but really, hopefully we just get to watch any games at this point because they've been so (laughs) far and few between. And we've up until this week without games been scraping the bottle of the barrel, trying to figure out stuff to talk about. So, you know, on the current schedule, we'll only have one game played by the time we record next week. So, it still won't be a whole lot. Hopefully at some point, you know, it starts hitting a consistent basis because I also think it really kind of hurts the team's development. How much further along are they right now? Like, what is it? Three or four weeks after Christmas compared to where they were in that Villanova game, just because they haven't played. I think we saw how many steps this team took from the UMass Lowell game to that Villanova game now it's just kind of plateaued because you don't have those game experience to try and improve on. Exactly. What they ultimately need right now is just to play in games. And unfortunately that's not been happening. So hopefully, I don't know, whatever plan going back to the boring talk about what everyone needs to do, but hopefully the biggies comes up with some kind of plan that makes things go a little bit smoother by the time that we talk next week. Right. Hopefully we'll be able to start off next week's podcast with another nice, boring talk about schedules, format, and all that good stuff instead of basketball, because all season long, it's pretty much felt like basketball has been on the back burner, which is partially understandable, but it would be nice to have that escape from everything going on to just be able to talk about basketball instead of everything else. Exactly. That is going to do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Gower. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel V. Connolly. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon. Be sure to tell a friend. Also read the UConn blog for all our news and game coverage, Store Central and the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly. Megan, you got anything to close us out? Um, if you need some good news for your week, go take a look at what Husky Ticket Project has been doing. The hot sauce on the men's side. Um, some good in the world. <laughs> I will second that. The hot sauce is quite possibly the most incredible social media trend, at least on a Yukon level, that I have ever seen. And it's helped raise $10,000 for the Husky Ticket Project. So yes, I second that. Go check that out. That'll do it from us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>